This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. The largest advocacy group for Zoomers is putting a face to the issues impacting older Canadians. This week, CARP launched its national strategy in advance of next year's federal election. And recreational marijuana becomes legal in Canada in just three days. How will that affect hundreds of thousands of Canadians who use medical marijuana? We get expert advice. But first... Here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Months after appointing its first Minister for Loneliness, Britain has named a Minister for Suicide Prevention. Health Minister Jackie Doyle-Price has taken on the role. She will lead efforts to cut the number of suicides and overcome the stigma that prevents people with mental health problems from seeking help. About 4,500 people take their own lives each year in England. Here in Canada, that number is about 4,000. That's 82-year-old computer programmer Masako Wakamiya of Japan. She's being recognized worldwide for her efforts to keep seniors digitally engaged. Two years ago, she developed a game app for senior iPhone users, and that led to an invitation to Apple's annual meeting for software developers, where CEO Tim Cook introduced her. Last month, she was invited to the United Nations to deliver a keynote speech about the benefits of lonely seniors learning how to communicate with others through the Internet. Meanwhile, online socializing may weaken the tie between pain and depression for older people. A new U.S. study suggests that among people with pain, the rate of depression was lower with social media use. The lead author says while it doesn't replace seeing someone in person, going online to maintain contact with family and friends is beneficial for seniors who restrict their social activities due to pain. The study is published in the Journals of Gerontology. Former Prime Ministers have penned new books with similar themes. Stephen Harper's book, Right Here, Right Now, is about the rise of populism since the election of U.S. President Donald Trump. And Jean Chrétien unleashes an unflattering opinion of Trump in his new book, My Stories, My Time. Tina Turner's husband saved her life by donating his kidney. The legendary singer writes about her health struggles in her latest memoir, Tina Turner, My Love Story. The 78-year-old is opening up about her second marriage to Erwin Bach and reveals he donated a kidney after she suffered total kidney failure. During the ordeal, Turner admits she seriously considered doctor-assisted death in Switzerland, where she lives. Turner has survived both a stroke and intestinal cancer with Bach by her side throughout. 
A Tina Turner musical is coming to Broadway next year. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. What if we could make Canada the best place to age? We can. We have a plan that reflects the experiences of older Canadians. That's a clip from CARP's latest campaign, and the plan is called FACES, a new five-point senior strategy released by the Zoomer Advocacy Group this week. It comes in advance of next year's federal election, and with 300,000 members, CARP says the message will be loud and clear. I talked with Laura Tamblin-Watts, CARP's chief public policy officer. I think the time has been right for CARP to release a full platform. So this federal government has been eagerly asking for it, and we have already sent it out across the country to provincial and territorial governments. So the take-up rate is already happening. What we can use as a full platform is to hold the government's feet to the fire and say, these are the different areas that we need. What are you going to do about them? We've already seen some uptake. We've already seen the interest. Okay, uh, this is FACES. So let's start with the first thing, which is financial security. Where do you see the gaps in government measures for financial security for older Canadians? Well, there's a lot of financial gaps, but we focus on four key areas for this. The first is we're trying to protect pensioners from corporate defaults. We want to make sure that we grant the 1.3 million Canadians who have corporate-defined benefit pension plans super priority. And what does that mean? It means if a company goes under... All of the money doesn't go out into bonuses and into other forms of uh, financial disbursements, but will go first to the very people, the seniors, who've been paying into it. We also want to make sure that pension plans are fully funded. So that's the first one. We want to see that we can eliminate the mandatory RRIF requirements. Right now, we have to withdraw money at 71. And yet when that was established... The average age of death was in the 70s. What we know is that people are living very long and they need the flexibility to save for their retirements, which may be much later. We want to make sure that we get rid of some of the clawback GIS, and we want to make sure that we have a strong, neutral, impartial ombudsman for banking services and investments. A is for abuse prevention. So where are the gaps there? We know that while one in 10 older adults who live in the community and who are cognitively intact report being abused, it's much more like about one in six older Canadians, and that's unacceptable. We can't keep saying it's somebody else's problem. This is a social problem, and we need a response. So an awareness campaign, we need to make sure that people know what abuse and neglect is, And we need a 1-800 number so people who are struggling to figure out where do they turn can talk to a real human being at a federal level who can help to direct them to the local supports. C is for caregiving and housing support. Why did you group those things together? We know that in people's lives, they go together. Older people want to age in place. They want to age in their communities. And in order to do that, we need a strategy that allows people who are providing care to get appropriate tax relief and to get the things that they need that will let them release their time to help other people. And right now we know about, new statistic came out, $66 billion of unpaid volunteer caregiving is provided by everyday Canadians, many of whom are seniors 
giving the care. We need to allow some tax relief to let people keep their housing. We want to make sure that the housing supports allows people to stay in the kind of homes that they want to for as long as they can. And if you've ever been into a hospital, we know that older people are being called bed blockers. They're becoming the, quote, problem. Our system needs to find a way for older people to have geriatric triage and get them into the places they need without them getting hallway medicine. We know that social isolation causes premature death. It absolutely does. Social isolation and loneliness is actually a killer. In a recent study by StatsCan, which came out just at the beginning of August, it said the number one quality of life indicator and your health indicator is the quality and number of your social connections. Conversely, we've learned that not having social connections can be as detrimental to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we need programs that allow older people to participate in the community, to become engaged in the community, and to make sure that we reduce stigma and ageism as a part of that social inclusion. Anything you want to leave us with on this? Our national platform will allow individuals who are advocating at the local level, as well as those of us who are advocating to government, to choose the areas that are most important to them and to connect with their local representatives. Bring this platform with you. Challenge your local representatives or elected officials to sign on. And then when they get elected... You have their endorsement and you can bring it to them and say, you promised, now it's time to deliver. I've been speaking with Laura Tamblin Watts, CARP's Chief Public Policy Officer. I'm Libby Snymer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, preparing for a new normal when marijuana becomes legal in Canada next week. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. More than 330,000 Canadians are registered medical cannabis patients. And when recreational marijuana becomes legal in just three days, the expectation is that a lot of them will start to bypass the medical system and simply opt to medicate themselves. What will the impact of that be? I sat down with Dr. Daniel Schechter, a family physician, medical cannabis expert, and chief medical officer of the Cannabo Medical Clinics across the country. The current medical access regime is called the ACMPR, or Access to Cannabis for Medical Purposes Regulations. That's been in place since 2016, and it will continue to be in place after October 17th. And just go over it. So that means if you want medical cannabis, you have to get it prescribed by a doctor and you have to get it delivered through the mail. That's right. It's not that complicated. Uh, basically, you go see your healthcare provider, either your doctor or nurse practitioner. It gets authorized to you with uh, basically what is a prescription, but it's actually called a medical document. That's a document that gives you permission to purchase a certain quantity of cannabis for a period of time. That document, you cannot go to the pharmacy and get it filled. The only way you can get medical cannabis is actually in the mail. A certain number of licensed producers, those are the companies that are producing cannabis and selling it to patients, have stated that they are going to focus on medical patients and ensure that medical patients have access to products before the recreational market. 
Uh, it's also important because this allows us to further research. We, you know, if there is a medical access regime, we will actually be able to do the research that is necessary to increase acceptance across the physician population, the patient population, as well as for government. Recreational cannabis is going to be legal. It will involve a lot less paperwork or rigmarole, so presumably a lot of people will choose to medicate themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and a lot of people have been medicating themselves. And, you know, what I foresee happening is that those who are using cannabis for medical purposes and are getting a true benefit and are being followed and monitored and supported by their physician will continue to get it through the medical stream. A large number of people... Uh, will actually try cannabis because they're curious. They're, they're what we call canna-curious. And they'll find, hey, you know, I took a couple inhalations and I didn't take my sleeping pill last night or I'm not using as much Tylenol 3. And then they might go to their doctor and say, you know, I'm finding that this substance, cannabis, is actually benefiting my symptoms. Is this something that's right for me? What will happen to the numbers of people over time who are using medical cannabis and and what are some of the possible pitfalls? So I I think initially we're going to see quite a drastic decrease in the number of people getting medical cannabis through the official channels. But over time, that is going to slowly increase and we're going to see even greater numbers and are accessing it now. What I worry about is that if people start using cannabis on their own for therapeutic purposes, they might be doing it either ineffectively, they might be taking too much, they might be taking too little, they might be replacing other medications that they actually really need on board. So I think however it is that you want to use cannabis, it's important to talk to a healthcare provider. We want to make sure that you're not having any significant interactions with other medications and that you're getting the best benefit possible from this medication. How do you know what you need to try? The best way to find out what type of cannabis you should try is by speaking to someone who is trained and knowledgeable in this. Ideally, it would be a physician who has training in cannabinoid-based medicines. If your family physician or nurse practitioner doesn't, they can refer you to a clinic that specializes in cannabinoid therapy. And there they have educators that specialize in mentoring patients in instructing them on what strains to try, how to use it, how to titrate it. And really cannabis is different from every other medication because there is no single dose or product that's right for every person. And we have to go through a process of basically trial and error in order to find the strain and the dose that's right for you. People often use different strains of cannabis for different symptoms, depending on the time of day or which symptom is dominant. Chronic pain is probably the number one reason why people are seeking treatment with cannabis. The best evidence we have around the use of cannabis is for a type of pain called neuropathic pain. But it really seems that all types of pain can be responsive to medical cannabis. And it's not just THC or CBD that's effective for pain. It really seems that it's a combination of both of those molecules. What else do you want people to know as we head towards legalization? 
You know, I think it's important that if you have any questions around medical cannabis or cannabis in general, go and speak to your doctor. Go and get information from a reliable source. Governments of Ontario or uh, Nova Scotia, governments of Canada, they all have websites that have dedicated to providing accurate and up-to-date information. Okay, Dr. Daniel Schechter, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Daniel Schechter, co-founder of the Cannabo Medical Clinics. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, a folk legend who's enduring music is now loved by a new generation. Paul Simon celebrates a birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international art state book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. A month after TIFF. Biff is now underway in Australia. The 10-day Brisbane International Film Festival runs until October 21st at the Queensland Art Gallery. It features more than 100 Australian and international new releases and classic feature films, documentaries and shorts. At the London Film Festival, director Peter Jackson's World War I film premieres this month. They Shall Not Grow Old is a documentary that transforms grainy footage from the war into colour. The film will be screened in London and across Britain on Tuesday, less than a month before the centenary of the war's end. I know my heart can stay with Sir Paul McCartney has donated 63 photographs taken by his late wife Linda to London's Victoria and Albert Museum. The portraits of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, her family and nature will go on display at the museum's new photography center. Linda McCartney died of breast cancer in 1998. And a new exhibit showcasing the origins of the U.S. civil rights movement is now open in New York City. Black citizenship in the age of Jim Crow runs until March at the Historical Society Museum and then will tour nationwide. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Paul Simon celebrated his 77th birthday yesterday. The famous half of the folk legends Simon and Garfunkel met his famous music partner when he was just 11. Together, the two spent their teenage years writing and performing songs, honing the craft that would make them global music stars. In 1964, they had an audition with Clive Davis at Columbia Records. He was so impressed with the duo and signed them as Simon and Garfunkel, and they quickly released the album Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. It didn't get much attention at first, but slowly one of the songs, The Sound of Silence, gave the duo a huge following. They re-recorded it for a follow-up album, The Sounds of Silence, which also featured the hit song I Am A Rock. From that point on, their music career was established, and the duo released multiple albums with iconic songs like Homeward Bound, Cecilia, and Scarborough Fair. One of their biggest hits gained immense popularity after it was featured prominently in the 1967 film The Graduate. The lyrics revolve around the plot of the movie where the young Benjamin Braddock, portrayed by Dustin Hoffman, is seduced by the much older Mrs. Robinson.
That was Simon and Garfunkel with Mrs. Robinson. Paul Simon is celebrating his 77th birthday this weekend. Earlier this year, Simon announced his retirement from touring and performing. He held his last concert on September 22nd in New York City. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.